Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. As sports medicine professionals, we interact with athletes at all levels. I was one of a handful of sports medicine physicians who started from a pediatric background to work with an NFL team as one of their team physicians. It was part of my career I won't ever forget, and no question gave me some additional street cred, so to speak, in the sports medicine world. But for me, it wasn't about being in a locker room with some truly remarkable athletes. It was meeting some truly incredible human beings along the way. Most people look to professional athletes as idols, as people above and beyond the rest of us. Even though I've been around many pro athletes, I have a few of those that I've met that I would be super nervous about. My favorite player of all time, Ryan Sandberg, who I did have the honor to meet, was one of those and actually named my second boy after him. But they're also just human, fallible, and broken people, as all of us are. And although some enjoy the glory and fame, it can be a burden as well. It can lead to pressure to perform and can lead to some dark places. My guest today is an athlete I met when he was a player for the St. Louis Rams who had some low points, but like a phoenix, rose from that low place to truly become an inspiration to others, including me. I'm honored to have him on the podcast today to share his story and some of the remarkable work he's doing. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. My guest today is David Vibora. David played college football for the Idaho Vandals and was selected by the St. Louis Rams with the final pick of the 2008 NFL Draft, giving him the title of Mr. Irrelevant. He became the first Mr. Irrelevant in the 2000s to start a game in his rookie season. And he played three seasons with the Rams and then played for part of the 2011 season with the Seattle Seahawks. After retiring from the NFL, he opened a sports performance training center in Dallas called the Performance Vault. And in 2014, founded the Adaptive Training Foundation, a nonprofit organization focused on providing free personalized training programs for injured veterans and those with disabilities. Welcome to the podcast, David. Doc, it's so good to be on with you, man. You had such an effect on me and my career and just my own personal opinion on docs and if I can just say this, right, NFL speaking, right, we try to hide out from you guys, right? Like yeah. the doctors are not people that we want to interface with too often, but you were always somebody that I felt like was such a battle buddy for me and somebody that I could go to in, in true confidentiality and say, here's what I'm dealing with. So brother, it's so good to be on and I, I just so appreciate you. Well, and I, I'm thankful for those words. I, I really I appreciate that sentiment. It's always, I, I agree. I, we know that you guys hide out from us on a regular basis. <laughs> it's not unusual. No one wants to go see the sports medicine doctor, whether it's you guys at the pro level or if it's the kids I take care of at the middle school, high school level and younger, they, they don't want to come to see us because they think, you know, our first thing is we're going to hold you out, right? Yeah. And that's never what any athlete wants to hear or wants to, to do. And we get that. We understand that part of things. But I really want you to just start giving a little background of your story in the NFL. NFL. You've got an interesting story. You know, you definitely have some low points with some issues with pain meds. And I'd love you to talk about your experience just a little bit. You had a, an experience also with taking a supplement that actually turned out to be tainted. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really, really important point. So just kind of give our listeners a little story, your background. Yeah. So the cliff notes are this. I was a skinny pencil neck quarterback growing up in Eugene, Oregon. Dad was a duck. Dad played linebacker for the ducks. For me, it was like, I wanted to play at the highest level, right? And so when Division One schools were calling, it was super exciting. And then, you know, most of those back then, it was Pac-10 schools, but they most of them passed and ultimately it left me with one Division One offer, which was the University of Idaho. And I took it and yeah, we were 
contracted to make some money playing the USC's and the Oregon's and the Michigan States and so on. But it put me on a, a platform and an environment where I was able to exceed and making, you know, 15, 20 tackles a game. It allowed me to be seen by scouts. And pretty soon it was like, whoa, this kid, like he may have NFL potential, but it was still like, all right, high school to college, college to pro, like he's talented, but is he good enough? Mm-hmm. And that was always the shtick with me. It was like, can he actually be the guy to exceed at the highest level? And so to be drafted the last pick and to be Mr. Irrelevant, in, in all reality, Scott Linehan, who was the coach at the time, former Idaho Vandal, which obviously served me uh-huh, well. Aha, I forgot uh-huh. about that. Uh-huh. Funny how that last little tick uh, just bodes <laughs> well for me. But, you yeah. know, it was clear to me that I was given the opportunity to step in and to, to contribute. And whether that was special teams and eventually defense, it just was my opportunity to say, hey, I'm here. I'm here for real. And you may have seen me as somebody that was maybe, you know, a late round pick or a, a, a free agent, but I'm here and let's, let's see what we can do. So that was, that was integral for my entry into the league. But I think that the, the main part for me that was critical was being able to glean, you know, wisdom and insights from a lot of those NFL veterans, right? We had Orlando Pace, we had Torrey yeah. Holt, Mark Bolger, like the locker room was crazy. I know we didn't get a lot of wins in those early years, but for me as a competitor, I was just so blown away by being able to interface with these people and ask them really hard questions. And that's, I think that's where I achieved a lot of my success. It was, how did you do it? What did you do well, right? What would you do differently? And what can you tell me about how to do it right? And that was critical for my success. Tell our listeners a little bit about the Mr. Irrelevant part, because I, I think it's, it's interesting. You know, you get, a, you get a trophy, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it in my in my office right here. So it looks a lot like the Heisman, but the only difference is the guy carrying the ball is fumbling the football. So it, it's called the Lozman Trophy. Nice. Yeah, and it's 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 even more prestigious in my opinion than the Heisman. That 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 whole idea of like call me anything you want. I got drafted in the NFL, right? Like this is my lifelong dream. So for me, it was it was less about the irrelevant week in California, which was awesome. And my family got to experience that, which included like, they picked you up in a Lamborghini, uh, <laughs> Disneyland, like like total VIP treatment, went to the Playboy Mansion. I was a single man back there. <laughs> Sorry to Sarah Fabora, my wife. Uh, but all, all to say that was really cool. But the most impactful experience as Mr. Irrelevant was this. We finished rookie camp. It was like, I, I want to say it was like a Sunday night and the community relations department at the Rams said, hey, we need somebody to go and speak at an elementary school. And I said, yeah, cool. I'll do it. I'd love to. And I'll never forget this, Doc, because I was like, hey, how many of you kids have ever been the last pick on the playground? And the hands were just shooting up. And I said, well, listen, I was the last pick literally on Sunday night. Don't let that stop you because it's not going to stop me either. So Mm -hmm. I realized that there was a way to play the hand that you're dealt, right? Which Mm -hmm. is cliche and people hear that all the time. But I really believe, especially with the work that I'm doing today, it's like the perceived disadvantage played well is the thing that is the disruptor or the differentiator in your story that can guide people to, you know, a hope-filled journey or give them permission to see the benefit of the perceived disadvantage. And I think that's such a a unique way to look at where life is for you, not against you. Mm -hmm. And so that really teed me up in a big way as Mr. Irrelevant to have a voice and have an opportunity. 
it's interesting the way you describe that because you know we talk about Mr. Irrelevant. There, there's a joke in medicine that what do you call the person who graduates last in their medical school class? Doctor. So so they still have that distinction. You got you get the distinction of you're an NFL player. You just picked last. You're still heads above everybody else who didn't yeah. get drafted. And same thing for medicine. You know, it's you know, these are all good, good students typically, even though you may have been the person who didn't score the highest in your medical school class, you still got a long ways away and you still are a doctor because you finished it, you graduated. So yeah. it's, it's kind of the same thing. So it's it's a different way of way you just turn it around into the positive rather than the negative that it sounds like a little bit. Here's the deal. At the end of the day, you can have all the intellectual ability, right? Like uh, being really smart is cool, but at some point that has to be elicited in real action, right? Yep. In, in the field to which you studied. Mm-hmm. And so for me, and, and going to the, you know, Mr. Irrelevant that gets hit with a performance enhancing drug failed test. And doc, I mean, you were with me in those days. It wasn't like I went from, you know, 210 to 250 with 4% body fat. Like, had I done so, I would have loved that feeling. But to get hit with a PED test and to realize that like, whoa, I did the actions right. I called the hotline multiple times. All the things are documented that I was trying to do things the right way, but ultimately get labeled as a cheater. Yeah. You know, like that was a big deal, especially because I felt like I was always using hard work, right? As the mechanism for overachieving those that were most talented. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was really about what is it about the game that is true for me, right? Whether we're losing games or winning games, whether people are saying, hey, bro, you cheated or not. I was just like, okay, I know that when I hit the pillow at night, there's a few things in my control, which are what I put in my body, how hard I work, and my allegiance to my teammates to be in the place that they need me to be when they need me to be. Honestly, I put blockers out. Like I just kind of like blocked all the outside noise. My family, who was super supportive, uh, was incredible. But I just tried to anchor myself in like what's in my control, realizing that the truth would come out big picture. And ultimately being exonerated for that was great. Believe me when I tell you, anybody listening, there was no $5.4 million cash out on that. As cool as that sounds, I would have loved that. It was just people that were snake oil salesmen. And ultimately it was able to exonerate my name and I was able to move on. And it's a unique marker for me because I can educate people, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, hey, look, even if it's a broccoli supplement and they're saying it's only broccoli in it. At the end of the day, if that broccoli has something spiked or at some level there's a quality control gap, you're responsible for that. Like harsh reality in pro sports today and the league certainly doesn't care whether or not you did things above board. It's just at the end of the day what your test says. So did you see any dime from that 5.4 million? You know, I didn't, uh, you know, at the end of the day between lawyer contingencies and otherwise, it, it was really about kind of just reconstitution for them. But, yeah. you know, like I, it wasn't a get rich plan. That was never right. it. Oh, you know? yeah. I mean, right. Right. It was it was about just honor and authenticity, my name. And yeah. at the end of the day, like I, I feel like people that are willing to bend the rules, right? Like the truth comes out. And that's why we were just really proud to get the, uh, the the validation, the verdict that we did. You know, and I have that discussion a lot because I get a lot of teens that come into my office who ask me about taking supplements for whatever reason. And we have this discussion. I actually use you as an example, honestly, on a regular basis, just in the standpoint of, hey, I, I work with players who have taken supplements, thinking everything was legit. They're getting something that they're going by what's labeled on the bottle. And lo and behold, this player took a supplement and it was tainted with something that was illegal by the league. And so 
that's the hard part that I think people don't realize about the supplement industry, about how non-regulated it is. They yeah. can put whatever they want it. They don't have to put anything. They can put everything that it says on the label yeah. and, and they can get away with it. Yeah, totally. it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Glad that you went through the experience and the outcome of it, that you were yeah. able to clear your name, but it, it sucked because you, you missed games because of it, right? Yeah, I lost a bunch of money. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like it was, right. the four game suspension was no joke, right? As Mr. Irrelevant, you're certainly not on a huge contract and to miss four games that you know that you would have been starting and playing significant time was hard. The one thing that I'll say is, you know, Steve Spagnola at the time was our head coach and the staff that we had and the players we had, I, I really respect and appreciate the way that they were behind me. It was hard to be public about those, those things organizationally, but sure. uh, I knew in, in-house that those people had my back and I appreciate that. Yeah, that's good. I think it's always helpful for people to get an idea of kind of what you went through when your career ended. We know that the average lifespan of an NFL player is what, 2.6 seasons, I believe, is the average. So you exceeded that a little bit. Did you feel that you had the proper people to support you in that transition? What did you get help from NFL in making that transition? Your family, friends? How did you do that? Because, you know, we, we see all these players that leave pro sports and it's just like, all right, you're done. Right. Where, where do you go? I mean, if you're someone that's been in the league, you know, like Whitworth, who just retired after 18 billion years of playing left tackle, <laughs> you know, that's a different story. But but he can write his own end. But, you know, yeah. sometimes an injury for like you in particular, an injury kind of ended things for you. This is the golden goose. This is the the magic question, which is what is the league doing? What are us as former players doing and, and otherwise? And I think, you know, for me, it was tumultuous. And I, 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 I'm actually grateful that it was, man, because it's not dissimilar to the people that I'm serving today. There's an identity crisis. It's like you've worked your whole life to achieve, to reach this you know, pinnacle in sport and to be running down on kickoff with 80,000 people screaming. And like, there's a God complex that comes involved in that. And, and I got to compliment you, Mark, because you were super instrumental before I ever decided to make the decision to leave football, you always met me as a person. Obviously, there's high stakes involved, right? There's Mm -hmm. incredible pressures, not just from the athlete perspective who has worked their whole life for an opportunity, right? Especially as a late round draft pick. You're going to get one, maybe two shots. Mm -hmm. But And and there's a hard maybe on the second one you were someone who was less concerned about me being on the field and more concerned about my mental health, more concerned about my stability, me as a person. And that's rare. So compliments to you. And I think the sports medicine staff at that time in St. Louis was more focused on us as people than just quantifiable metrics and statistics on the field. And so I deeply appreciate you guys. I'd say for me, it was like when I realized that I was conceding my own well-being to be on the field, which led to a rampant opiate addiction. I mean, it did. Like, and I'd say opiates, Xanax, like at some point it was whatever I could use to cope with this incessant need to be better. Like I couldn't turn it off. Yeah. It was the nature that like I'd come home and I'd be in an Epsom salt bath and I'd be watching film and then I'd be on the and 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 although that's those are markers of a elite player or somebody who's committed to their performance, it was swallowing me whole. It was like the opportunity to do outwardly was my identification with who I was. And so I didn't have any real 
grounds for who David was as a person and, and the value that I, I felt removed from football. For me to make a decision to walk away from the league was a big deal. Ultimately, I think it synced up really well with the timing because the people that I was focused on being able to help moving forward are people that I could use the gym and the ecosystem for sweat psychology, right? Like through moving weights and conditioning, you learn a little bit about yourself. And I, and I realized that those attributes could be repositioned outside of the sport of football. That's a good transition as far as what you kind of morphed into as far as kind of your next career goal or next career part was opening up the performance vault. So talk about the starting the performance vault, what kind of got you there then we'll, we'll talk about how it led to the Adaptive Training Foundation. Yeah, you know, I, so many of my mentors were in the weight room. And, and I think that, you know, talent at some level, it expires through hard work and achieving and focusing on your craft. And, and just, just being that lifelong learner is, is how you supersede those that are more talented than you. And so all that, that worked, certainly for a, a period of time, Performance Vault was focused on taking young athletes high school to college, college to pro, pro beyond whatever their current circumstances were to exceed and to, to continue to achieve. That was sort of a natural progression. But then there was a chance intersection, right, with Staff Sergeant Travis Mills, who, for our listeners, he's a quadruple amputee, one of five living that was uh, combat injured to, to become that. And when I met Travis at a surprise birthday party for a Navy SEAL friend, it was like, it was crazy the moment because I know I was rude. Whoever I was talking to, I totally walked away from the conversation. This guy without arms and legs walks in. It was like the hot chick at the bar. I just booked <laughs> it right to him. And I walk up and I was like, dude, when was the last time you worked out? He's like, I don't want to make you feel like an idiot, bro. I don't have arms and legs. What do you mean? And I was like, oh, I get that. But like your physicality, like you have to tap into it, right? Or else there's, there's a part of you that you're not activating. And he was like, you know, you have experience. I'm like, mm -mm, no, not one bit. I've never, this, you're the first amputee I've met, bro. But I promise I will tirelessly research and we will do things so different than the clinical sort of sterile way of physical therapy. And I guess he heard something that he liked and he, he bet on me, he came in and, and pretty soon, man, we were just like doing things that he had never done in rehab. And he's pulling like a 150 pound sled, like on short prosthetics. And all my NFL guys are like, oh, maybe my, my pinky toe doesn't hurt the way that I thought it did. And I'm like, wow, this is brilliant, right? Like, yeah. what if we took people from different experiences and ecosystems and integrated them? Mm -hmm. Because the weights don't care. The weights don't care what color your skin is, what background, what sexual preference, veteran, civilian, amputee, spinal. I don't, it doesn't matter. And so once we started to really just like put everything into this pressure cooker and watch what happened, we realized that, man, like access and inclusion in the gym is a way that you bridge different people's perspectives for growth. Mm -hmm. I got the pleasure of being able to come down and take a tour of the place at the time. I think you've, you've changed your facility, correct? The digs are way better at yeah. this point, bro. <laughs> way better at this point. We got a real thing happening. We got 20,000 square feet. Uh, it is legit. But yes, you got to see it in the infancy. But you know, going in there and seeing that and getting to meet a couple of these vets mm -hmm. and man, it was, it was inspiring just watching them do what they were doing. And 
you know, again, it, it's, it's so unfortunate we label these individuals as disabled, you know, mm-hmm. and in, in the standpoint that they really do have abilities. It's just a lot of people just haven't thought outside the box of how we can let them thrive and flourish and with those abilities that they do have, right? Yeah, let me tell you a story. So the other day I was explaining, so I had two of my, one's a Marine, one's an Army vet. Both of them are above knee amputees. Pretty equal bilaterals, both studs. And I'm explaining something and, and as I'm showing the demo of it, I'm like, this is really hard to show you guys with legs. What happens to be? They're like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, you have legs. Oh, it's we feel so bad for you, right? Like, yeah. oh yeah." But the truth of it, and that's the fun part, is it's like we should all be able to throw a little bit, do a little bit of trash talk, because the nature of it is like, dude, they can do things that I certainly cannot. Mm-hmm. And I'm an NFL athlete, right? I'm mm-hmm. a guy who's in the gym all the time, and I love to make sure that I remind people of my athletic prowess. But in this instance, like they have a leg up pun intended. And so that's just part of the fun, man, and the banter that happens in the gym. Yeah, it was fun to experience. So so tell us a little bit about, I'm assuming it's just, you know, some guys started talking and say, hey, this is what we're doing here. And then you got other guys coming in and just kind of spread from there. Is that kind of how things happen to get the foundation going? Yeah, it totally is. We never spent a dollar on marketing. Social media has been an incredible catalyst for us, certainly. What we do, our flagship nine-week program is focused on about two-thirds veterans and first responders. The other third is civilians, and it's very intentional because we realized early on that although it's sexy to have an all-veteran, especially in a place like Texas, mm-hmm. uh, we realized that that was nearsighted. It was like building the bridge between veteran and civilian divide because the veterans will be like, oh, well, those civilians, they just don't understand. They just they, they can't get it. And eventually I'm like, yeah, why would they and how could they? And do you want them to? And they're like, okay, yeah, no, I actually don't. Like, no, I don't wish that upon anybody. And so the, the equalizer is, hey, go explore somebody else's side of the fence, mm-hmm. you know, and then come back to your own perspective with maybe a little bit of space and maybe a little bit of an understanding and some compassion. Because yeah. I think compassion is unique, right? It's like empathy, cool. Feel what you're feeling, got it. But compassion is like, hey, look, I see that you're dealing with this. So it's like, hey, come as you are. Come here to the gym. What, what people don't realize is it's not about somebody walking for the first time at the gym. That, that, that very well may happen, but that's like, it's, it's sneak therapy. It's like really what's about between the ears. It's how do we shift them from extrinsic worth, value, and motivation to intrinsic? How do we equip them with the tools, the habits, the community, so that they have the opportunity to mentor somebody that has faced something similar to them, which is largely unimaginable for a lot of us. You want to talk global pandemic and uncertainty of that and all the chaos of that. This is the population to look to because, again, whether it was a drunk driver, a tree falling, a bomb blowing up in in service or whatever, like the rug was pulled out from under them. And that's where I get so excited because I feel like these people's stories are the marker to guide us inspirationally, but aspirationally. So, hey, hear this, feel it, right? Get the goosebumps. That's really cool. But what are you going to do with it? Because the doing, the action of hearing and then deciding differently, that's the point. And I think whether I'm on a stage, you know, corporately speaking, if I'm in the gym working with our athletes or otherwise, it's really about aiming people to that narrative. And that's really the, the throughput that I care about most. 
We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue our discussion with David Vabora from the Adaptive Training Foundation. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back, and we are continuing our discussion with David Vabora. Yeah, it's just, it's appreciating and getting that knowledge. I think a lot of people, they're just fearful of interacting with someone who's disabled because they may not know what to say. They may not know their capabilities. And like yeah. I you know, mentioned in the intro, this is, they're all broken people too, just like yeah. we are. It's just different ways that we're thinking about it. And man, it's just once you, you put yourself into someone else's space for a little bit, get to know them and learn about them. I mean, boy, that's, it's, it's life-changing for everybody, right? I mean, it's just, it's getting some of that experience. And I think that's where we have so much of this trouble in the world. It's just, people just don't talk with each other, get to know people that are different from them. And, and then we have all this conflict. Yeah. We silo ourselves, right? It's, it's really convenient to put yourself into, and whether you're aware that you're doing it or not, like there's just this nature of like convenient ignorance. And, and I, I say this all the time. It's like, you want to galvanize a group of humans, do really hard things together. I don't care if that's a Spartan race or a Tough Mudder or a marathon, or if it's just like, I'm going to wade into the water. Like I, we had a big event last week for the foundation, which went awesome. But one of the opening lines that I had was our foundation was built on wading into the water with the athletes. If we would stand on the shore, like, Hey, you got this. Like, yeah, we believe in you. Like, those are all cool. But if our feet are wet too, Mm -hmm. right. And we're in the water, then all of a sudden it's like, there's, they realize like, dude, okay, we we've earned their trust and we believe that they're capable. When I was playing for Seattle, there's a guy that I played against when I was with the Rams, he was on the Niners, Jeff Ulbrich. He's a stud defensive coordinator in the league now. When I came over to Seattle, he was my linebacker coach, assistant linebacker coach. And he'd walk past me every freaking day in stretch lines and go, hey, when you're ready to talk, come holler at me. That dude knew I was addicted to pills. He knew what I was dealing with because he too went through that stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
he what he would do was just like little drop seeds. And I'm like, <clears throat> yeah, I'm fine. What, do you, what is he talking about? I don't, I don't need any help. Right? Yep. Yeah. And so like, those are the God winks, man. Those are mm-hmm. the moments like, you know, Mark, I, talking with you, like just having people, I think back on, man, things could have gone so much worse. Like, were they painful? Yeah. Am I grateful for that? Yeah, I am. But people like you, people like Jeff Ulbrich, Spags is another person who checked on me a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. And whether he knew something was up or not, maybe he just cared. And those are the people that I'm uh, eternally grateful for. Yeah. Part of the reason why I got you on the pod, although honestly, I have been hoping for the last couple of years to get you on at some point. I, it, I'll go, I'll do a little digression here just mm-hmm. so people know kind of the environment in the St. Louis Rams locker room back when you were there. <laughs> so I still have a Christmas card. That you guys made. I think you went to, I think it was one of the Bass Pro stores. shop. Bass yeah, Pro, Bass yes. Pro, yeah. You've gone to Bass Pro. I still have that Christmas card that you guys made. I mean, this is, I, I think, you know, it's one of those things that in, in a locker room like that, it was fun, even though, you know, the team sucked. I mean, yeah. let's be honest, right? I mean, they weren't good. Yeah. We were. um, it was some lean years there, but it was a fun locker room. You guys, that's the that's a sports locker room is a great equalizer in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, you know, the, the color, all that kind of stuff, you know, that's that's gone. That's out the window for for the vast majority yeah. of people. But but just to put that in perspective, because I had Chris Long on a while back and I had mentioned that to him about that. So too. Fun. I, I love that Christmas card. It's hilarious. And if you guys we should even talk about the your uh, station wagon. Oh, man, the Woody. Yeah. The Woody. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, talk about Mr. Irrelevant and Chris Long, the you know number one draft pick. I guess he was the number two in the draft, but the number one for the Rams. It's like, you know, we became best buds in rookie camp and he bought like an 83 uh, grand marquee or Mercury something like just silly car. And we rolled around and a couple years later, I buy a 84 LeBaron wood paneled and, yes. and still have the freaking thing against my wife's best judgment. It's sitting in the backyard, rusting out, you know, it, to your point, Mark, it's like it, teams are measured upon wins and losses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what people don't realize is like, man, these are individuals that are putting their heart, heart and soul and body on the line consistently for their, you know, brother to their right and left for their organization you know, for their paycheck, fill in the blank. What I think gets missed is, yeah, there's a lot of revelry. There's a lot of camaraderie. There's, you know, we're living our life and doing our best to be joyful, even when you have down years in this silly game of football. And and I think back to those times, I mean, shoot, I think about Gary Gibson. It was his birthday mm-hmm. on Cinco de Mayo. I talked to Craig Dahl a lot, Danny Amendola, mm-hmm. Chris Long, Jacob Bell, like AJ Feely. Like I, I, I talked to a lot of these guys quite frequently. And, and the reason that I dropped their names is there's just so much love, man. There's so much purpose in the things that we've gone through. Mm-hmm. And back to the going through hard things galvanizes us. Mm-hmm. Look, everything that I've built my foundation on, I've stolen from, I call it, Brilliant borrowing, right? It's clever rearrangement. I've stolen from sports experiences throughout my life. I've stolen from church, certainly mm-hmm. my beliefs, my my religious beliefs. I mean, I'd even include like when, as I got out of rehab and otherwise like AA, twelve step stuff. Like all of it is was there. It's funny because in our gym there's a box, and you'll remember this. That's tape on the ground, and it says sympathy box. Right. Your excuses are invalid. If you want sympathy, you have to step in the box because you're not going to get it anywhere else in the gym. <laughs> and those are unique culture things, right? They're yeah. like, oh my God, that, that's offensive. But at the same time, it's like, 
the trophies for trying thing is just not us and it won't be. And, and, and frankly, like, again, come as you are, but be willing to put in the effort to state your claim because that's the only way that you're going to change yourself and potentially somebody else is going to witness your efforts to give them permission to do it for them. Yeah, it's, it's really cool to think about our draft class. And although we didn't get the wins that we wanted, just, just the impact and the impact that it's had on me. And I mean, shoot, me and Chris Long through Water Boys, through his organization, we took one of our Marines who was above knee amputee and, and summoned Keeley six months after he was amputated. So it's just, it's cool to be able to do things and, and use our opportunity and platforms to impact people. Yeah, I have, I have one picture hanging in my house from the days of the Rams. One picture only. It's not from the field. It's actually in the locker room in Detroit after that season we went 1-15, the one win. And it's you and Laurenitis and Chris Long all sitting around as we're, we're praying. And Spags is there too, right after uh, after the game and the win. So that's that the one picture that hangs in. I, it was in Reggie's office. Um, yeah. And I, I stole it. Well, I didn't steal it from him. I asked for a copy of the picture so I could have one <laughs> frame it myself because I thought it was such a meaningful picture and really yeah. captured what what I, what it meant to me as being a team doctor and that environment yeah. in the locker room. Well, I know that shot very well, and I remember that moment. And so, yeah, man, that gives me good joy. Yeah, and and it kind of as I digressed, <laughs> the 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 question, you know, I, I obviously I wanted to talk about your work and and things like that and what you're doing with the Adaptive Training Foundation, and we will have uh, links in the show notes to uh, the Adaptive yeah. Training Foundation if anybody's interested in looking into it more. If you want to want to donate to the foundation, those types of things, we'll, we will have those there. But I came across something on LinkedIn that it had you in it from a from an article. I believe it was Newsweek, maybe Michaela Noble. She's a cheerleader and she was paralyzed is what the story that I read. And yeah. she came to be and come into Adaptive Training Foundation. So tell me a little bit about her story. She sounds interesting. Yeah, it's remarkable, man. What a story. I mean, she is a national champion, cheer competitor from Prosper, Texas. She's gorgeous. Yeah, she ends up with a high level spinal cord injury, right? C4, C5 and uh, becomes paralyzed. And so- yeah, it's crazy. How do I say this? I want to say this in the most humble way. God is the one who is orchestrating and facilitating the opportunity for us to serve the right people. Mm -hmm. We just try to answer the call. And I could tell you a hundred stories right now. We don't have time for it, but I could tell you a hundred stories of connect the dot alignment, serendipitous sort of intersections that seem like coincidence or chance, but dude, I, I believe in something so much bigger. And yep. Michaela falls in that bucket. She is, it's crazy because early on in this work, it was either you're a complete, I know we have a lot of orthopedic docs and such that are listening to this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, you guys all have a job to do and dare I say it's an impossible one. Right. When you're trying to manage expectations and diagnosis and outcomes, and it, it is a, it, 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 I, I don't envy you one bit. And yet I realize that, you know, you're managing circumstances with a ton of unknown. And so when, when somebody ends up with a spinal cord injury, it's, it's, it, it's quick to be able to say, hey, this is a complete spinal cord injury or an incomplete spinal cord injury. But I think the danger in that, right, is self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They buy into some level of, and again, just because you have a lab coat doesn't mean that you're God. Right, right. <laughs> uh, 
yet I do know that you guys are, you know, doctors are doing their best to say, here's what we have in data. Here's what we have in scans and imaging. And here's what we think is possible. But where we come in as ATF is like post-rehabilitation, post-medical process has ceased. It's like, hey, you want to give it a shot? What's the worst that can happen? Oh, you end up back where you were and you're, you're a complete spinal cord injury? And so we've witnessed so many athletes that we've debunked that whole complete, incomplete thing. And we actually see on a greater scale, especially in DFW, less doctors being so just finite in their delivery Mm -hmm. of that. And I think that that leads us to an opportunity to dream, an opportunity to say, hey, we don't know. You know, it may be today that you have little sensation, little feeling, little movement, but instrumentally we can introduce you to different modalities, different potential movement patterns. I mean, there's so many different things that we can do inside of our gym that I think have elicited just crazy breakthroughs. Uh, and part of that too is like the mindset, the mindfulness, the breath work that we do, like the uh, ability to, to believe that it's possible that our body can heal itself, right? Like we are our own placebo. I really believe that. And once we put people into an ecosystem to, to start to do growth producing fear encounters, they start to see like, whoa, I never thought that was possible. So if that's possible, what else could be? And as a dad, like that's what I care about with my kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like sure. somebody's going to tell them at school, you can't sing, you can't dance, you can't play this thing. And I'm going to say, hey, look, at one point somebody told, you know, 251 picks told me I couldn't. And the 252nd said, maybe you can. Mm-hmm. So Michaela is exciting for people that are listening. Certainly, you know, follow Adaptive Training Foundation, follow Dave Vibora, follow Michaela Noble. This story is going to be incredible. I'll tell you this, one female athlete that came to our program, Nikki Lewis, she got married in Maui. The whole family was there. They stayed there for their honeymoon. Four days after they were married, she was in the water and a rogue wave hit her in the neck and severed her spinal cord. She became a quadriplegic on site. Her husband, who couldn't swim, is in the water trying to save her and pull her out. Like literally her neck gets snapped and she's face down and can't move. She's drowning. He's trying to rope her out. Happens again coincidence, right? Mm -hmm. Not so coincidental. There's a first responder who uh, his flight got canceled that morning, happened to be on the beach, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) pulls her out, uh, life-saving, you know, EMT facilitation. They fly her to the big island, life flight her there. She has the best neurosurgeon from Japan who happens to be on the big island that does surgery on her. Mark Cuban pays for her life flight home. (laughs) Right. I'm walking through the airport. My wife slaps me and stops me because we're traveling. And she says, Hey, look at that. Says Frisco mom paralyzed, blah, blah, blah. We reached out to her on Facebook. Uh Fast forward three months. She comes to the gym in a wheelchair. Fast forward post nine week program. She stands at graduation, accepts Mm. her patch and jogs out the door. Wow. She now had a new baby, which she wasn't Mm -hmm. supposed to be able to have. Mm -hmm. And part of the connection here is, all of her kids are in competitive cheer. Guess where? With Michaela Noble. Oh, wow. And the same cheer squad. Yeah. So, like, these are the things that I'm like, hey, man, you can't, you just, yeah. you got to trust the fact that, like, I don't know why this stuff happens, but the what next is why ATF was birthed. Yeah. 
So tell me, you know, it's it's almost a decade since you started ATF. Don't make me feel old, bro. Come on. <laughs> Don't make you feel old, bro. I'm turning, I'm turning the big 5-0 in another few weeks. So well, you look dynamite. The, the goatee alone looks golden. Bro. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But the body doesn't feel dynamite <laughs> as much as it used to. That's it. That's it for sure. You know, we've talked a lot about kind of what you're doing there, you know, where do you see things going? What's what's the plan from here? I mean, I know you've got lots of corporate sponsorship now. Where where do you see this this going, David? Yeah, man, great question. So we are working to solidify a campus, which will include on-site housing, the gym. There's basically the the programmatic excellence that can all be contained in one specific building. As we forge ahead on that, the the real reason is it's a flagship, it's a laboratory. So we're proving out methodologies so that we can scale them on a larger landscape. So there's over 40 million Americans categorized with a physical disability. For us, it's not necessarily brick and mortar, although that will be a part of it. It's really about a software, hardware, hybrid model. So think, Mm -hmm. uh, think masterclass, Mm-hmm. but driven by our graduates themselves in a masterclass kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so that adaptive class is going to be scalable, geographically speaking, with low infrastructure needs, uh, but basically creating pop-up geography to be able to have people connect to elicit the opportunity. And the, the best part of it is we just partnered with Lululemon and they just bought Mirror. And so with Mirror, we're trying mm-hmm. what, what we're actively doing is recording content to be mm-hmm. able to position that outwardly facing, whether it's, again, you may be a, a mom at home that has lower back problems and that you know specific program is, is best built for you the same way it would be for a T-spine injury. And so we're, we're working on creating content digitally as well as interfacing with people in a brick and mortar as it pertains to their geography so that we can expand what we're doing. And I think the main piece for me is like, it goes back to the story, right? As soon as somebody kind of like you, right, gives you permission to do something that you thought was impossible. Mm -hmm. That's when all of a sudden, like, click, 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 everything happens really quickly. And that's where I think that these people can be a beacon of hope in a lot of ways. I don't care if it's Parkinson's, ALS. I mean, I had a guy with such a unique diagnosis of ataxia recently. And dude, he wasn't supposed to be able to maintain muscle tissue, much less grow it. And he's put on 12 pounds of muscle Mm -hmm. in six months and he's training his butt off and he's doing great. So again, I think there's what the textbook says Mm -hmm. and then where we dare to defy impossible, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a really cool moniker for the organization. It's not just great marketing. It's what we believe. Mm -hmm. You know, we usually end our podcast with something we call the pearl of podcast. And in medicine, that's our our little kind of takeaway nugget that we want that person to to kind of give to our listeners. But obviously, we're not talking medical speak, so to speak, as far as a diagnosis, but you've got some pretty important stuff. So, you know, if you had a take home message for my listeners, what what would you what would you say? Man, it's if you treat people broken, they act that way. If you look somebody in their eyes and treat them as a whole person, they show up that way. So. Again, I think medically speaking or otherwise, it's about looking somebody in their eyes, right? Empowering them to focus on what they can do and therefore redefining what they can't do as part of the mechanism to prove that they can go and and think bigger than they feel. Mm -hmm. So much of what we do as humans are replicating familiar memories and, and thought patterns. As soon as we 
again, and, and a huge part of my program, like I told you, is, is, is really the, the mindfulness part. It's about equipping them with tools and habits so that they can catch themselves using language like can't, won't, couldn't, shouldn't. And then all of a sudden they start to change. And my favorite thing, man, I got goosebumps right now, <laughs> is when I hear an athlete catch themselves saying one of those words and they change a noun, right? A pronoun, a verb. Mm-hmm. And because I'm like, mm, they're aware, yeah. right? Yeah, sure. With that comes choice. And with that, and that's all I want for my kids. Mm-hmm. Like at the end of the day, I want my, and here's a beautiful thing, Mark, my kids, and I'm going to say this mindfully because I said this at a speech recently and and somebody came up, but I often say they don't see disability. Mm -hmm. Okay. Somebody came up and was like, well, we have a mixed family and we teach people to see color. And I get where she was coming from. (laughs) Yeah. So let me say this a different way. My kids see it. They just don't think anything different of it. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I had an amputee who just won a gold medal in the Paralympics, a Canadian snowboarder, Ty Turner. He came to my house and he was here for an hour. And about 30 minutes into it, the kids went upstairs and he goes, I'm freaking out, dude. Your kids haven't looked at me or stared at me once. Like, what is happening? I'm like, this is weird. And I said, Yeah, it's because like all of their friends are right. missing limbs and these are their people. <laughs> sure. Right. Sure. So I think that for the people listening again, see the human. Treat the human and connect with that person because there's magic, man, in sharing from wildly vast different experiences and just allowing people permission. I, I, again, I, and I, I'm, I'm bold. I, I don't really care whether people share my same beliefs. But as a Christian, I believe that Jesus lived a compassionate life. I believe that he was interrupted constantly. I believe that he connected with people and he saw them whole. And so I try to do the same thing every day. And if I can, man, I do it imperfectly, that's for sure. But if I can do that, everything takes care of itself to include the work that I consider work, to include, you know, DV as a dad and as a husband. And, and that's, that's really the magic. Well, I appreciate you, brother. And if anybody got a label that was totally incorrect, or maybe it was actually a challenge for you of Mr. Relevant, I think that was definitely the wrong <laughs> the wrong <laughs> label to put on you because you absolutely have been relevant into many people's lives. And and you know, I, I just love to thank you, David, for just sharing some time today and telling me your story, telling our listeners our story, how you're spending your life after pro sports, you know, that difference you are making in other people's lives. I truly do admire your heart. I admire your passion and I'm honored really to have crossed paths with you and, and, and journey through life. You know, as you, you mentioned, you know, there's those little things, there's those God drops mm-hmm. <laughs> people right. who come into our lives. And, you know, I, I hope his stories inspired all of my listeners. Think about ways that we can use our gifts to help the lives of others. We do that in the medical world, but boy, there's, there's some things that we can do sometimes above and beyond what we do in the world of medicine. And I think just the importance of seeing people, recognizing the value their lives have, no matter the challenges they may be facing. Please check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at PedSportsPod, or you can check us out on Facebook. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.